You are listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast Nordics, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful technical leaders in the Nordic region. I'm Sean Vance. I help connect businesses with tech talent. And today I'm your host. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today I'm joined by Greta, Paolo and Jesper to discuss the importance of managing data quality. So before we get into it, let's work our way around the room with some quick introductions. Greta, do you want to start us off? Hi, my name is Greta and I'm the data annotation team lead at Go Autonomous. Here at Go Autonomous, we are a startup and uh, we focus on helping uh, B2B companies in completing their transactions end to end by creating a SaaS solution that we provide to these B2B companies in order to um, help them with their customer service requests. Myself as a data annotation team lead, I work with a, with a team of annotators where our basic main job is to train the model by labeling different types of data. Our main source of data is emails because that is the main source of B2B transactions. And um, so our main focus is trying to figure out what is the best way to annotate our uh, data, which is emails, how to label them in so in such a way that we can train our models so that we can help um, these B2B companies to complete their customer service in a better and more efficient manner. Perfect. And Paolo? Yes. Hi, everyone. My name is Paolo and I'm a product manager and lead data scientist at uh, iMotions. Uh, at iMotions, we build software for researchers who do experiments using biometric sensors. So that would be things such as uh, eye tracking or heart monitoring or monitoring of brain waves, usually to answer some some questions, some research question. So what we do in uh, in my team is to build the tools and the algorithms that our users will use to get value from these data. Great. And Jesper? Hi, I'm uh, Jesper. Um, I work at uh, Mood Agents, which is a Danish uh, streaming service. Music, uh, music streaming service used to be. Uh, it's a music technology company also, and um, I work with um, all aspects of data. I will almost say, like from the very um, basic mu- music metadata to to developing models for users. Uh, I work with um, I'm the team lead of, of a team uh, consisting a lot of musicologists and um, and um, so yeah we look upon it with with uh, what you call music eyes on the on mm-hmm. end users eyes I come from uh, humanities uh, myself so I I've been working a lot with how to use data for for, um, for different qualitative purposes. Okay, great. I can already tell we're going to have loads of different inputs here, which is great. So now that we have established a context to each of you, let's move on to our topic in focus. So you all have questions based around the importance of managing data quality. And as usual, I'll work around the room with each of these questions and allow you to elaborate. Each of you will then have the opportunity to give your take on these situations. Okay, so Greta, you firstly asked, how are we able to maintain high data quality when training models? Do you want to explain a little bit more for us? Yeah, of course. Um, So I proposed this question because I obviously, as 
I'm the data annotation team lead within the company, then I work mostly with, with the data on its own. So I have a team, an in-house annotation team, and uh, together we work to find the most optimal way to label our data. Um, we work with a lot of different kinds of data, uh, mainly things that are surrounding emails because that's what B2B transactions are. It's very email based. So we work to see what's the content in the email and what kind of information we can extract from this, e from this email, be it text itself or the attachments within it. And so we've created an annotation strategy that will, in the end, train our models in order for us to automate this um, B2B transactions that happen. So I can give just one example, just to give context. So for example, we're working with a, with a specific company in a specific industry, and there are people that are making quotes and orders. And we create this model for it. We create a model for it to recognize what the email is saying. So if it, if it is a quote, if it is an order and so on and so forth, so that the people within the customer service, um, they don't have to go through the whole thread of the email to figure out what's going on, but they will have like a, a, a label telling them this is what the email is saying and instead of them to it, it it will basically speed up their process that is one of the main things that we do so of course since i we work so closely within with the data we have to make sure that the way that we are annotating the data is that of a high quality because and that and obviously that it is also consistent with whatever we've annotated um before, because the model is training according to the data that we are are input are are giving it. So the the higher the quality of the, of the data that we are inputting into the model, the much better the model performance will be, and the faster it will learn how it can recognize certain different entities. Um, so how we are able to maintain it? Uh, one of the things that we really focus on is quality control. So. Um, we work a lot with validating our data. So after the annotators have gone through the data that we're working with, so, and as I said in, in the beginning, because we work a lot with B2B companies, it's mostly emails. And so that would be text and PDF documents and images. Um, once they've done uh, the different tasks that we have with these emails and we kind of exhausted the annotation, the labeling that we can, can get out of it, we have specific people within the team that will go back at what at what the other members of my team has made and we will correct what has been done. The main reason why we do this is that so that we can keep everything consistent and basically what I have done and what another person has done is completely, is practically the same so that the model will obviously um, learn things in, and learn things in that in a, in a consistent manner and not have things be completely different to each other. Um, so that is one of the big ways that we that we maintain high data quality. And till now, it seems that it's been it's been working because um, our model has been learning things. And because of the way that the model is evolving, we can also uh, change our annotation strategy to kind of adapt and teach it more more things and train and give it more data to train with. Yeah, great. So how are you able to maintain high data quality then, Paolo? Yeah, so that's, uh, I think, a very, very interesting problems that uh, Greta uh, has just introduced. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, hearing what she was describing, uh, one thing that uh, stuck with me is this practice they have of uh, having a validation phase for the manual annotations. 
And I think that's key. It's also one of the things that I wrote down in my notes preparing for uh, for this podcast. So when you have some task, uh, some sorry, some labeling that is uh, dependent on a manual annotation task, I think it's very important to have a set standard for what should be annotated in a certain way and what shouldn't, and having this kind of validation phase where the first pass is somebody adding the labels and then the second pass is a different person checking that the labeling is uh, coherent with the with the set practices i think that's a, a very good way to to handle this kind of uncertainty that you have when at the end of the day you have a human that is making a call on whether something should be annotated in one way or the other and humans can have different opinions or of course make mistakes um and i think also uh Another point that um, comes to mind here is when you have pretty much any data heavy task, uh, data modeling task, I think it's uh, it's good to ensure that the team working on this uh, on the problem has the necessary knowledge. And typically, I would say uh, you could divide it in uh, domain knowledge. So for instance, in uh, great as example, uh, that would be who can understand in a in a business which emails should belong to which category so that that would be the main knowledge from the business side and then of course you also need to have the people who know the methods so the the data science the, the machine learning who are actually building the model and then training it and uh, and making sure that it works so i think there's a combination of uh, skill sets is key as well yeah definitely and um, what do you think then jasper yeah i'm thinking about um cases in within music and they could I could mention a lot uh, of things here um, one model uh, one one task I'm, I'm particularly thinking about could, one example of a task could be music similarity like how are two songs similar or aren't they similar and to what degree and and of course this is a, a very subjective uh, it, it's a very subjective question um, and what can we say about that? It could be that one thing is uh, Sex Pistols uh, singing uh, My Way, another is Frank Sinatra singing My Way. They're similar in some sense, one, but one is punk rock and the other one is crooner jazz. And so they're similar, similar on the melodic terms, but not in the, in the terms of, of the audio. So in this case, uh, you could either ask is uh, maybe, now I'm, I'm actually thinking for, for us and, and me as, as sitting with the end user experience also in mind when I do this, it's, it's, we need to know why are we doing this similarity? Uh, what's the end purpose? I can imagine for you, you need to have a very accurate uh, set of tools. And actually for our sake, a similarity can give you, be used for a lot of things. It can be used for recommending music that sounds similar. Uh, I really like this song, the new song by Ed Sharon. Can you recommend me something like? Can you even find the word the songs in Poland that sounds similar? Uh, so that could be one purpose. Another purpose could create a, a music flow for the user, to the user, uh, for the listener. So we barely remind, notice that the music changed. Um, just to name two examples, and that's something we have to have in mind uh, when we annotate for similarity. 
Okay, back to your question, how to then ensure the similarity. Uh, I have not been involved, personally involved in these processes, uh, but I know of history uh, within uh, Mood Agent that can manage, even though it's a very subjective task, can manage quite uh, well um, with professional ears on music, can manage to get really, um, what you call it, <laughs> become very well aligned on, on uh, and how you would uh, see similarity, for example, uh, or happiness in the music, that could also be a problem. Um, yeah, so that was down one subjective path. Sometimes it's also just very objective uh, data that we create, yeah. Based on, uh, yeah, actually Jesper's uh, comments and everything that came to mind is considering when you, especially when you have this kind of tasks uh, or problems that revolve around text, uh, considering also the the pre-processing phase um, when you're building the model, um, and there, for instance, you could have things like different uh, spelling variants in the in the text. So the same word that can be spelled in different ways, maybe because of regional differences, maybe because of typos, because those happen as well. So what do you do with those? And and then I would imagine there something like. Uh, clustering approaches or perhaps looking at uh, text distance uh, functions that could be a way to to handle that and ensure the the quality of the model even when the some of the variables might be affected by these uh, these issues but actually to bring the discussion back to uh, to Greta a question that um, came to mind uh, for her how do you handle emails that are more than one thing. So I could imagine uh, maybe a salesperson sending out uh, a quote, but also in the same message, setting up the next uh, demo with the, with the client. How can uh, that be dealt with? Yeah, so we're, how we're able to do that is obviously like we've analyzed in the very beginning when we started, we analyzed how people write emails. And it seems like a lot of people, for example, if they want to pass over a task to someone else, they just do a forward with a blank, with a blank message and keep and keep it empty. And then you start questioning, how do you go about that? You know, like how do, how do you, how does the model will be able to recognize that this email is blank and, and so on and so forth. So we came up with a strategy that um, we basically how the model reads the emails is is through what is written in the in the subject. So if you have a reply, then we read the final email because basically that is the email that is either providing information or giving um, um, uh, uh, giving a, 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 a what's it called um, giving a, a request to do something right. Um, and then if it's a forward, then we'll just go through all it will go through all of the email until it finds the mail with the with the reply in the subject it's it might not it's the way that the model reads it and then for us as as annotators because that is uh the strategy that we've that we've come up with is we are trying to put ourselves in the shoes of the people that are actually working in the customer service so even though the model might only read the first email within the thread for us to get context and completely understand what is going on? What does the customer actually require in this situation? Then we'll go through all of the, you know, we'll go through the emails with the most context for, for us to understand. This person might want an adjustment on a previous on a quote that might have been previously quoted and so on and so forth. And you can only get that by actually acting like 
the customer service person and what that person might do. So in that way, we are also maintaining this high data quality because we are basically replicating what an actual human would do and training that to the model. Um, and it's it's been the way that we've been uh, annotating this one sector of, of type of annotation that we're doing with males, um, because obviously we want the, the model to be able to replicate what is actually, you know, hap actually happening in the real world, right? So if someone is asking that they would like to make a new order and they would like to order a product, regardless of what's being said in the rest of the email, let's say, I don't know, they were complaining about something, then the actual in intent of that specific email is that they would like a, a, a product. So that is the kind of, for this specific task, that is the kind of strategy that we've created internally. Um, and how I go about it is that there's I work very closely with the machine learning team. Um, and together we come up with, okay, what's the best way to handle this problem? How can the model le learn learn it, uh, learn through this? What do we need to do about it? They come back with their with their with their um, solution and say, okay, we need to do this. And then I, I, I go back with my team and then we figure out together what is the best way and, and, and labeling wise, how to, how to do that. And um, it's a very uh, interesting dynamic and we work a lot, a lot, a lot together in order to continue um, training our model with the best, with the, the, the best kind of quality, uh, high quality that we have. And what's also interesting, at least for the annotators themselves, they don't only work with text, we also work with documents, so with PDF documents, we also work with images. So there's a different range of, of different types of annotations that we do. And so at least, um, they get to experience different things. Music don't match humans, but humans don't match themselves either. Yeah. Because, yeah, what a similar music. I just explained it before that it's, it's a very problematic thing. I think my question is to, to what extent um, is do you have the same problem? And how do you organize to get alignment so that annotators annotate similarly? Yeah. So um, that was one of the, the biggest things that we were in the very beginning when we started. That was one of the things that we really wanted to ensure sort of how can you know, if you have a team, if you have a team of we, we have a team of at the moment of about 12 people. How do you bring 12 people with all their different cultures and ideas and 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 they all speak different languages as well. Of course, the basis is still English, but they all have their own native languages. How do you how do you get everyone to streamline to think the same way so that what we are training them? model will be consistent and one way we've gone about it is to um, have guidelines where the annotation team will 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 have it's basically their their handbook for what they are doing and they and of course even though we work together and we discuss and whenever there's a problem because we are dealing with 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 data that is that is very uh, in the human uh, like very human made data you know if we're working with emails and and PDF documents that contain a lot of different information within it, then obviously each and every use case is completely different to, to each other. And so one email might be extremely straightforward and the next one would be so complex that you need to figure out what the person might be saying, how they might be, how how they might be interpreting what they're saying. So what we how we've gone about it is that the uh, the team has a handbook. We've kind of made like a guideline like to have everything consistent as much as possible. So when it comes to 
um, I don't know, for example, labeling PDF documents and uh, where you have documentation, which is usually made with templates. So if usually when you receive a, an invoice in your mailbox, it's usually they practically look kind of the same. You know, you have an address at the top and the table in the middle. So there in that case, you can create a really consistent kind of guideline that whenever you see this, you label it this way. And whenever you see that, you label it in another way. But then when it comes to, to things which are a bit more abstract, like as, as I said, like emails, because I can write something one way, but you can write something in a different way and we're meaning the exact same thing, then how would you keep that consistent? So uh, we've always tried to to have discussions about any any of the uh, any anything that isn't unclear. So every time like a new thing comes up, um, I'm always present, and that's why we have an in-house annotation team because we work with live data and and the data is constantly you know it's constantly being we have data constantly coming in and and so each email is different from the next and we don't have any similar similarities. So we do have an in-house team, and I'm here with them. And uh, we work as every time a question comes up, we work and discuss with it together and then learn from it so that when a similar idea comes up again, then we know, oh, OK, we've seen this in the past. Then we'll reason it out, reason it out the same way that we've done. And we kind of take note of these things during in, in the guidelines. So we have this um, um, guideline document for each and every different task that we have, which is constantly updated so that we make sure that every time every time someone comes into work, they will be able to be up to date with the with the tasks that we're doing, and in that way, keep things consistent so that the model is trained in the most optimal way. Great, perfect. So we'll follow on from that then, and we'll come mm -hmm. to you, Paolo. And you have asked, how can we ensure data quality through data collection and processing in a remote context? Can you elaborate a little bit for us? Yes. Yeah. Of course. Um, so in our work at iMotions, uh, one thing that is a bit uh, different than other contexts perhaps is that we are not the ones gathering and collecting the data, but our users are. Uh, what, that, what does that mean? So our software, as I said, is something that researchers in human behavior use, and that's researchers both in uh, academia and in the industry. And they will typically run some kind of experiments and collect data as they do that. An example could be uh, a company that is uh, developing new packaging for one of their products. They might want to use iMotions to expose the group of respondents to the different options for the new packaging. And as they do that, the respondents will be wearing some sensors. And uh, typically, you would also use uh, uh, eye tracking to see what they're looking at. So this creates a data set, and based on that, then our users, that is the researcher, would try to uh, build some metrics or in, in some way extract information about which package should be, which packaging should be uh, chosen. So that's basically all to go beyond just asking people what they think using surveys, but measuring how their bodies react to something. So... Um, as you can imagine, there are so many ways to do this, and uh, some of our users are experts, but other ones uh, naturally will be new to this technology and these methodologies. So mistakes can be made along the way, and the challenge is to to handle the, those possible mistakes and uh, handle potentially bad data. Um, and of course, the challenge there is that 
once the user has acquired our software, they can just run with it. And we are not there to guide them at every single step. Of course, there will be training, there will be onboarding, they will get documentation and all of that. But uh, how can we ensure that when they actually have to try it out in practice, things will work out as expected? So there, of course, there are many ways you could try to tackle this challenge. And um, just to kind of set the stage and throw some ideas out there, uh, one thing that we always recommend users to do is to have a pilot phase in their experiments. So that means that before they com commence the actual data collection for the data they will use, they just try out the protocol they defined and make sure that everything works and the data they collect makes sense, looks reasonable. So that's always, uh, I think, a good idea. And I think it actually extends beyond the setting of experimental research in so many fields, having some kind of tryout piloting and, and checking your that your model behaves as expected before you start the actual working on the actual data set you're interested in. I think it's something key. But um, another angle into this could be thinking of the user experience that is built in the in the software around data collection and then data analysis. And that can also be something that guides users away from common mistakes and tries to guide them towards the best practices. And uh, of course, trying to establish all uh, the good processes and communication around them. And that could be based in the trainings or documentation, anything that users will need to make sure they use the, the technology the correct way. Another uh, tip uh, here that uh, we always give to our users is to make sure to collect enough data. So if you want to uh, have good data from 20 respondents, then maybe you should try to recruit 40 or depending on the, the kind of protocol you have, a higher number. Uh, and that because it's natural that some of the respondents will provide bad data for a variety of reasons and that's difficult to control. So a good way is to uh, exceed and have more data than uh, you expect to need in the analysis phase. And that will be also depending, uh, dependent on the expected magnitude of the effect that you're trying to measure with your experiments. Yeah, so I think, uh, I hope this uh, sets the stage. So I don't know if uh, Jesper or uh, Greta have something to, to add to this. Yeah, go ahead there, Jesper. Um, yeah, I actually have a clarifying question here. Um, it's about... <laughs> Bad data for who? Is it for the customer or for you? Yeah, that's a very good point. Mm -hmm. So the the customers uh, own the data and they typically want to get some value out of it, right? So uh, it's for uh, yeah, it's for them that data should be good enough. But what is uh, yeah, sometimes what is difficult to to convey is. Or, or basically to make people realize before the experiment is that they, they need to have uh, to get good data when they when they start running their data collection. So that's why we have all these initiatives to try to ensure that they are successful in the in collecting data and running their experiments. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on this? Yes. Anything that you'd like to add? I. Yeah, I'm, I'm very much thinking about uh, the scenario uh, here that I don't have any personal experience with this problem, but it's so they're buying a product that you need to to make sure works as, inten as intended, right? 
the intention is that they can gather the data, but you're not sure that you guide them the right way to get the right data. Yeah. So that I, the, yeah, uh, that's the yeah that's the the challenge and the questions that I brought here. Yeah. Um, and yeah, maybe to to add a little bit more on that, uh, another way we try to also to, to guide users on the right path is to provide tools that are used to assess data quality. So this way, even though you're maybe not an expert in uh, in uh, eye tracking, you will still be able to tell if the data you're collecting is uh, has a sufficiently uh, sufficiently good quality. So all of these should be um, yeah are mechanisms that are in place in the in the software and our uh, analysis algorithms to try to facilitate and ensure uh, data quality. Yeah, what do you think, Greta? So yeah, I was wondering of if you, of course, you you mentioned that you have a lot of guidelines on how um, you ensure that your custom that your users are actually you know providing good data quality, so that uh, excuse me, good data quality, uh, good. Data with good quality. That's what I wanted to say. Um, because obviously, then it will be very beneficial for their research. But um, do you also prov do they have to have their own equipment in order to be able to create this um, the eye tracking data that you're talking about, or do you also provide the equipment as well? Because I think that would be how. Uh, because I assume that what you're using will also be. Um, a deterrent to the to the to the to the quality of the data if it, if your equipment isn't isn't the isn't good enough for what you need or maybe it needs maintenance and so on and so forth. Yeah, so that's a really good point. So um, the way it normally works is that when a when a client wants to start using a, using iMotions for their work, they would purchase the software from us, but we also advise on the hardware and recommend. What we think is the best uh, device for their uh, for their use case, and uh, our software integrates with a number of different uh, sensors and, uh, for instance, eye trackers. So we uh, we don't have a specific interest in selling one brand or another. What we want to sell to a specific client is what we think will be the best hardware to uh, yeah for their use case for what they want to do with it. Um, but it's true that there are many different ones, and uh, it's also in a way a moving landscape because there are many hardware manufacturers on the market. Things get uh, updated uh, the way, for instance, data is uh, measured. Sometimes can look a little bit different if you purchase a newer model of a specific device. So uh, all these things are also good to keep in mind. And uh, while that might sound super trivial, but I think it's uh, one thing that sometimes we need to remind uh, our customers is that they should, once they have started an experiment, have started collecting data, they should not change anything in the setup. And that means not getting new hardware uh, halfway through or updating the drivers or updating the software. Because you want to ensure that the, the setup stays the same throughout your experiment. And that's Definitely one uh, very important thing to keep in mind if you want to get good data quality at the end. Yeah, and Jasper, did you have anything else you'd like to add there? Yeah, I'm thinking about um, two skill sets uh, here needed. And, and 
One of them is 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 guess, I don't know the the English word in Danish would be choose. Uh, it's called I think it's guesstimating, the ability to to kind of sense is is uh, is this reasonable data I'm getting out. I think that's a skill that is very much needed in uh, these days with with a lot of data to assess uh, yeah to assess the quality of the data that way. Is this totally unreasonable? Or is this is it this in the right size of the data? I think that's a general skill we have. We need to learn, and that's something we're working a lot with uh, uh, where I work. Um, in this particular relation, I'm also thinking about the ability to interpret the data here. Uh, I'm not any. Um, I'm not that much knowledge about eye tracking, but I'm I'm thinking about how I would look upon eye tracking data, for example, if I was giving the first-hand impression of some eye tracking data of where I've been looking today, for example. I and I think I might be surprised when I see where where have I been looking uh, at the screen, for example, uh, for the past for the for the past hour, and in that sense, uh, I think. We need to, uh, yeah. What do I want to say? I want, I want to say that when, when, when we get this data, then don't be. Perhaps people get super surprised about, oh, it's like this and this. So that that kind of people perhaps needs a little bit of help of how to interpret the data and what is normal here. Again, back to the guesstimates. What is normal? How much do my eyes fluctuate during uh, ten minutes, for example? And uh, it might be surprised here. So that kind of help could also be a need uh, to, to help them uh, interpret the data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Paolo? Yeah, yeah. So I think that's an excellent point. So um, basically, what uh, I think what Jesper, you're saying, we need to have some kind of uh, high level metrics, you could say, that tell you something that, so at a glance, uh, is your data, does it look sensible or is something yeah. obviously yeah. wrong and uh, i think that brings to mind uh, something i i saw once so we we also have some do some work in the in the healthcare space and i was visiting this uh, this uh, hospital where they use uh, uh, electroencephalography eg so that's the technology that measures uh, brain waves that's relevant in a number of neurological conditions of course and uh, in a, in a certain context, they would measure patients for several days in a row, 24-7, patients who were uh, staying at the hospital. And uh, somebody's in the control room and looking at these screens with signals uh, refreshing all the time. And uh, in daytime, you would typically have trained uh, technicians, so they can, of course, they, they know what they're looking at. But uh, at night, sometimes you would have uh, medicine students who are just uh, uh, getting that as a study job. And uh, so on the wall, they had this printed sign with an example or different examples of signals. And it was something like, if the uh, EEG signal looks like this, then it's okay. If the EEG signal looks like that, then you have a loose electrode, <laughs> go and fix it. So yeah, that's the kind of metric that we need to have. Yeah, yeah great. precisely. And Greta, did you have anything else to add? Uh, no, not really. Not, not really. I think, I think uh, Paula already explained exactly what they do. And I feel like I do understand why, you know, 
you, why he brought up the question because since they don't, you know, they can't go to their user and tell them this is how you need to have your data for you to get the right results that you need. Then I, I totally, I totally, totally get that. And it's kind of like it, it reminds me a little bit of why we chose to obviously completely different context, but why we chose to have an in-house annotation team with regards to having someone who is remotely because obviously communicate. We need a constant communication with each other with the machine learning team and with us, and you know having to do that remotely although the introduction of remote working has been a massive like i think it has helped greatly in, in within the work workforce but when it comes to these kind of scenarios where you have where you're working with data that is live and you have high volumes of data having an annotation team where we can work really closely with the machine learning team as is our situation you can really adapt uh, your 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 uh, the the way we are labeling the data in our case um according to the needs of the model. And we can do that instantly because we're constantly in, a, in, the, in the best communication stream. But, and I, I can understand Paolo's difficulty when he was talking about, you know, the quality of the data because we can't even control the quality of the data that we receive because it's it's live and and our our platform just gets the email and we have to work with it. And, and then we have to take that into training and, and we can't even alter anything within it. So if we get an image that is crooked, then we need to teach the model to be able to handle a crooked image, for example. So I I, I really understand that that as, as being an obstacle of how you would, you know, like even though you provide guidelines, you still have to try and adapt uh, around that situation. Okay, great. So we'll move on then to Jasper. You have asked, when can we live with low quality data? And do you have any examples where you thought that low quality was acceptable, but then turned out not to be? Do you want to explain a little bit more for us there, Jesper? Mm, yes, um, I can do that. I was uh, basically just curious about the, the need for high quality data. And uh, because uh, that's something we struggle with in music uh, data because it's so vast and we cannot get everything right. So, um, so, so when can so the question is we also always have to um, to consider to what extent can we live with bad quality uh, to what extent uh, when is it not acceptable and we also have to prioritize according to uh, to to the what when is where is it most important and I'm 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 very much thinking about the user the end user here. Uh, of, of the consumer of the music. Um, that could be, I'm just thinking about some examples. If if we have some data that goes into an, a, a recommendation algorithm, then it might not be that important that it's super correct as long as we have enough of it. Uh, that could be people that listen to similar music. Uh, yeah, collaborative filtering. I like X because uh, oh, how, how should I say this? We we base uh, our models are based on people with similar taste, and it could be that one user listened to something that is not really her taste, but it doesn't matter because we have a lot of other users that has listened to the same music as her. Ah, that was badly explained. <laughs> I hope you get it. Like we can live with with wrong data points or bad data points um, occasionally. Other times, it's it's a worse problem if we have uh, 
bad data on the newest release by Justin Bieber, then uh, a lot of people will click on that and it will, uh, and yeah, and that will just be a, a total mess and look not very good. So I was, uh, so I was uh, curious about examples from, from your uh, daily work. When is, uh, how important is the good quality and, and when, uh, when is it not important? Not that important. Yeah, good question. And Paula, what do you think about this? Yeah, so good question indeed. And uh, I think maybe if I can extrapolate from what Jesper is saying, maybe we're also after a definition of what what does it mean to be high quality or low quality in uh, in data? And I think that's going to be very context uh, dependent. But uh, yeah, so about an example. Uh, so there. Um, again, I think uh, my example is uh, related to. Uh, brainwave monitoring so this uh, EEG and that's maybe because it's a very uh, tricky methodology to work with there are a lot of ways it can go wrong um, so you in a typical setup you have all these electrodes that are placed on the head and what they're trying to do is to measure the very uh, small changes in electric uh, field that are uh, connected to a certain area of the brain activating or uh, not being activated and um, as you can imagine, it's it's a pretty small signal uh, because already the brain is not operating at these huge voltages. It's just these small neurons sending signals around. And also there is the skull and there is skin and there is hair. So there are so many barriers that can stop and create resistance. So in substance, so many things, <laughs> so many ways things can go wrong. And uh, an example here would, was a client was running this large study with a lot of respondents all running through this uh, EEG-based protocol, quite time intensive. You can expect you spend one hour with each respondent to collect maybe 20 minutes of data. And uh, they got this big data set. And then at the end, they realized that for the whole experiment, all respondents have been sitting too close to some uh, electric equipment in the room. And so what ended up happening is that they mostly recorded uh, electric mains noise. So what to do there? Um, I think there are several approaches. So there, there is this saying in uh, the data community that is it's very old that says garbage in, garbage out, right? Um, but is that really the only uh, way? Because um, there are approaches uh, in this specific problem that would be more in the direction of uh, applying filters to Noise in this case comes from the the electric noise, which has a fa uh, fixed frequency, uh, 50 or 60 hertz, depending on where in the world you're located. And uh, so you can apply that, uh, apply filter to remove these frequencies and see what is left of the signal. But then I th again, uh, I think it depends on the type of the analysis and the magnitude of the effect that we are hoping to measure. If it's something that is big enough Hopefully there is enough uh, signal left after you filter, and especially if you had a large data set. Again, that can also be a help. But if you were after a very small effect, then that's probably bad news. And in a case like that, you would have to go back and uh, learn from your mistakes and repeat the data collection. So again, uh, data quality, I think it's something that is really dependent on the context and what quality is needed for a specific data analysis that you want to perform. Yeah, great. And Greta, what do you think? Yeah, I totally agree with Paolo. I think it's it's really dependent on, on the 
context of, of the like the use case that you have and what you're working on. I think when when Paolo was speaking, it reminded me a lot of one of the annotation tasks that we have. It's um it's we do image classification. Uh, one of the things that we, we do it is because with an email, sometimes you get like these uh, social media icons attached to the email or a banner. Um, I don't know, giving the uh, slogan of the company or advertising something that's going on or, or when someone is going to go on a Christmas break and they put it put a picture or something like that. And um, of course, for our, you know, for the context that we're working with, which is obviously, you know, trying to identify what is being said within an email, these images are you know, cluttering data, right? So what we what we do in that kind of situation, it's we do, of course we don't classify we classify that as data that is not required. So that is also kind of another uh, type of bad data. Not necessarily meaning that you know the quality of these images and banners are is incorrect. You know the way it's shown, not not meaning that it's blurry, but it's also is it even required for the use case that we have right now. Um, and uh, yeah, it just reminded me of, of that of one of the tasks that we do to kind of filter out what we need the model to actually look at, which is basically maybe someone took a picture of a product or maybe someone took a picture of how their package was was delivered rather than, you know, and eliminating those images that is just, uh, I don't know, like a social media um, uh, icon or, or, or something like that. Um, but one of of course as i mentioned before like we don't um have we can't alter the quality of our data as paulo said as well like how it's received that's what we need to work with but i think one of the things that we kind of that i kind of have control on as uh, the annotation team leader is how we provide how we label the, the data for it to be given to the model and one of the things we always keep in mind that if we have a uh, 10% to 15% to 15% of the data that we give to the model is incorrect, then we require twice as much data to be able to train the model to reach the same level of performance that we have, which is why something that we always keep in mind is that, you know, to keep this consistency and make sure that it's high quality data. So within my kind of scenario where it's more about how the data is being annotated as to the quality itself, it is, and, and from my perspective, when we, at the beginning, when we started, we didn't give much importance to how how the, the data was being annotated, then we realized we really need to pay attention to how we're, we're feeding it to the model because as soon as we start training it incorrectly, we need to do double of the work to, to be able to correct what the model has learned. Um, so for your question, it, it deemed to be extremely important within the annotation scheme to be able to, to you know, correct what the low quality data that we gave it, uh, that we provided in the past. And you kind of, you know, you learn from your mistakes. And so um, that, and that is how we kind of evolved to how we are, are right now to be able to, you know, really be consistent and be strict on the way that we provide the, the, the model to our data for training purposes. Okay, great. So is there anything else you'd like to add to that topic then, Jasper, before we move on? No, I think they were they were good and in, in, in super interesting answers uh, that made me think uh, about data generation. And and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm particularly thinking about that sometimes you, you think you can be a little bit like, okay, we can live with some bad quality ground data, but in fact, if the model 
two times out of 100 performs wrong, then it could be a really bad user experience for our sake. So we need to be a little bit more tedious, I think. Okay, great. So we will leave it there for today. And I just want to take this opportunity to thank each of you, Greta, Jesper and Paolo, for providing some really great insights into today's topic. Hopefully everyone can take something away from today's discussion, including our listeners, of course. So thank you all for listening. And if you'd like to get involved in one of our upcoming podcasts, please reach out to me on LinkedIn or by email at shan.vance at evolution-nordics.com. I hope you've enjoyed listening. This has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. Thank you.